Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today we have a very, very special show. Uh, when Ben and I first talked about doing Riverside Chats, the guest that we were most excited about, the prospect of finally getting on the show, it's like, a, you know, you, you think about who are the guests that are sort of like your dream guests that would really make the show it would show to you that at least the show is working that you're able to achieve the kind of things that you're really hoping to achieve with it and for us the very first person we come up with that checked all those boxes for us was rachel jacobson as i say in it i think rachel is incredibly inspiring impressive a fun person to talk to all of these things that are really rare to find in a human being in general and not only that but i think she has made more of an impact on the kinds of movies that I like to watch. And like that that sounds like kind of maybe a lame goal or benchmark to have, but for someone who's been as obsessed with movies as I am, who's felt drawn to even making movies, to writing them, to writing about them, to talking about them, as much as I do, I think uh, probably nobody other than her has really made such a mark on what my taste has developed into and helped me actually understand a lot of things about cinema rather than just watching sort of what's on TV or what's available to me. I feel like I've really been able to really develop as a result of the stuff that Filmstreams has played. Rachel Jacobson founded Filmstreams. She's currently ex the executive director, has always been the executive director. And Filmstreams is one of those things in Omaha that it's sort of like you can't even imagine what it was like before Filmstreams was a part of the Omaha community. It's so ingrained in the way I think about Omaha and what to do in Omaha. And like whenever I have a night free, one of the first things I do is check what's playing at Filmstreams. And Rachel made that a reality for me and for other people. And that's really what the show is like. It's about how did somebody do the impossible by creating that much of a cultural force in Omaha. Omaha is kind of stubborn as far as a lot of that stuff goes. So the fact that Rachel was able to do that is incredibly impressive. And like I said, I've always been so impressed with her. And I was sort of like a, a fanboy talking to her. I, you know, it was, I don't really get that nervous talking to people for this show, but for her, it was definitely like, oh man, I really hope I don't leave a bad impression. I hope I don't completely screw this one up of all of them out there. So please, please enjoy that. If you don't know what Film Streams is, it's our local art house cinema, but they do so much more than that to reach out to the community. And Rachel talks about so much of that in the episode as well. Please look it up if you don't know what it is. Please go there. It's a great place probably my favorite place to go in Omaha. And please also, of course, enjoy my conversation here on Riverside Chats with Rachel Jacobson, founder and executive director of Filmstreams. Thanks, everybody. So, I don't know what your preference is with the mic. I like to just hold it because I feel awkward and my head has been over the whole time otherwise. So whatever you're comfortable with. I think this is going to work. Okay. <laughs> Just yell at us if you can't hear Is that a good distance? Okay. Or is it getting feedback? Okay. Um, that. There? Right. Good. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. First of all, this is Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And first, before I even start talking to you, let me just say, when Ben and I talked about this project where we wanted to talk to local, notable Nebraskans in general, the first person we came up with for who we really want to be on that was Rachel Jacobson. And so it's really a dream to talk to her tonight. Uh, I found you to be extremely inspiring just in general in the community. I think beyond just myself, you've probably changed the way a lot of people in Omaha watch movies and the type of taste they have. Just like there have been so many times I've gone to film streams and 
just had amazing experiences watching, whether it's just a, like an independent movie that came out, whether it's in the retrospective series. Like, I know I'm a huge Altman fan. I don't think I would have been if it wasn't for film streams doing the retrospective, the Apu trilogy. The 2016 was a big year for that, as far as that goes. So, thank you so much for being here, first of all. Um, well, thank you, Ben. That's one of the nicest pictures I've ever heard. I'm Tom, actually. You're, you're Tom. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm calling you the right name. I'm so sorry. I know. You're Tom. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We just met in Florence. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. We, so, there's actually, before, I wanted to tell one embarrassing story about myself here, because you probably don't remember it. This was also in 2016. We had one email exchange before. Uh, so, Ben and I had made a movie that came out, and we, like, you know, we were just trying to find a venue for it to play, and so, First, we just emailed a bunch of the different theaters to kind of see what the rental rates were like. And we ended up finding one that worked. It wasn't film streams, but then we played the movie, everything goes fine. My dad comes up to me and he's like, why didn't we just play at film streams? <laughs> well, you know, like, it just you know, worked better to play here because we were just like broke college students at that point. And so uh, that all happened. And then the next morning, he sends me a screenshot from his phone of like a mean email he had sent you because he was offended that the movie hadn't played at film streams, as if he would like personally rejected it or something. When I'm sure nobody even talked about it. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, now i got to email her and apologize for what you did. Um, and that was my first time talking to you. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's not really much there. I just thought, so let's, let's acknowledge that. <laughs> we haven't talked about this before. But, uh, <laughs> no, you were, you were completely fine. He's the one who's like proud. He's like, I defended your honor. It's like, she doesn't even know about it. She doesn't even, when did you talk to her? He <laughs> emailed me. It was like, it could have been my responsibility. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, I think, you know, figuring out like how to devote, you know, screen time to local filmmakers and stuff like that is, you know, it's something that we talk about a lot. And, you know, we have the annual showcase that usually ends up being short films and, um, that's kind of our main venue, just so that it can be like kind of like a jury process to like sort of present, um, you know, different um, different films out there that kind of like exemplify our mission and the best of what's going on. Um, but we also um, partner with different people, different juries for that. And so yeah, I mean, there's a few different avenues for local local filmmakers to screen stuff. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, I, I feel like we can we we definitely work on those programs, and I feel like we can develop them more. I love that the Omaha Film Festival is here, and they're doing a lot to support our local filmmakers too. Right, and that was not me trying to guilt no, you or I, something like that. Just to be clear. But so okay, so let's start. Let's go back. So you're from Omaha, right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up here. Um, I went to Central High School. Uh, it was Shelby's uh, older sister. Graduated with her, and um, and I went to University of Illinois in Champaign, um, and then uh, moved out to New York City. And uh, yeah, it was around my senior year of college. I was taking like documentary film and French film classes and really got the idea that someday I would want to move home and uh, start like a cinematech in Omaha. And I don't really know where that came from, but, um, but it seemed like the perfect dream job. And so, you know, had to try to figure out how to do that from there. <laughs> right, well, that's kind of the whole story because I feel like Probably a lot of people had a dream similar to that, but you're the one who figured out how to do it. And that's crazy. And not only did you figure out how to do it once, but now you got two theaters. So it's like twice, basically. And so, I mean, when was it when you started to develop that affection for movies in general? 
Well, I feel like, I mean, growing up, I loved film. I remember going to Indian Hills when I was really, really little, like three years old with my mom and like, you know, walking up the stairs, you know, with that carpet that seemed so fancy and it seemed so grand there and like seeing Muppet movie. Um, I remember seeing, you know, Clerks and Pulp Fiction when I was in high school at the Dundee. I saw Citizen Ruth there, um, you know, all the indie films that came out in high school. But then I think, I think it was college, like when I took these film history criticism classes and like started to learn about how you could like think critically about film and analyze it as an art form and really um, do the same thing that we had learned to do with literature in our English classes with movies and that there's this whole visual component. So it kind of like took everything to a new level for me where I had a whole different understanding of it. And I also got exposed to a lot of wonderful, weird stuff from throughout the history of film and, um, and then also, you know, like more of what was going on in contemporary filmmaking and just got really excited and passionate about it. And then living in New York City, like there's so many great uh, movie theaters. And I actually, I had a friend in New York who, who kind of looked like me and she worked for uh, JP Morgan. And JP Morgan, like they donate to all the museums and stuff so you can get in free to stuff. And so I would like, I would like go to MoMA with my little card that looked like my friend and like, go to as much as I possibly could. And so I and I had a membership to Film Forum. I was just going to the movies all the time. So that's, I mean, I think that's when I really, really got super passionate about it and started keeping spreadsheets of everything I was watching with the directors and the year and where I saw it and stuff. That's when it really became a true geek. I definitely had a little phase <laughs> with uh, spreadsheets as well. I was documenting like way too many of the things. It's like, at some point you're like, what am I doing this for? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's just some weird, like I'm basically like, it's like a beautiful mind, but I don't know what like what the end, like, end game is here. But uh, So like, so you develop just appreciation for movies and thinking about them, and I'm sure like to some extent it teaches you how to think about other things as part of what you know criticism in general will lead you toward. But then to go from that to also think about, is there a job here in film? Especially like, if you're thinking of coming back to Omaha, it's just like, it doesn't seem like there's many avenues for that. Right, yeah, and that was like part of where the idea came from, because I knew I wanted to come back to Omaha. My family was here, and I um, you know, had an affection for the community and wanted to get back to it in some way. But, um, well, and I also just didn't see myself shopping strips around in LA and, you know, like it just felt like that side of the business would, you know, would be disillusioning for me and like, um, and so I think that, um, yeah, I just uh, kind of put those two ideas together, you know, because I was um, living in Scotland for a semester um, in Edinburgh studying abroad, and there was a Cinematheque right by us. Like, there's Cinematheques all over Europe, like museums that are devoted to film. And so that's when I really kind of started thinking about, you know, how important it is as an art form and how it really deserves to be treated in the same way that, like, the opera or the symphony or theater is, where it's actually supported by the community and where you can uh, do things from a mission perspective, even though it is such a commercial thing and it's still a commercially viable art form. Uh, you know, when you can when you can figure out a business plan that supports it, you can really um, you can really be geared towards the art of film and community building through film and everything that's wonderful about it. So yeah, so it was kind of this epiphany of putting those ideas together of 
you know, I know I want to work in film, but I don't really want to work um, on the commercial side, and then I know I want to come back to Omaha, so what if I just started a theater there? And um, I was really lucky because the first thing I did when I moved to New York, my sister was um, taking summer school at NYU, and she handed me this like certificate program, um, and there was, and she was like, you should do this post-grad because you're an English and political science major, and so you don't know what you're gonna do next, like a lot of liberal arts majors, so you should take one of these post-grad classes. And I ended up choosing one in arts administration, which is really, really lucky because I would learn the whole nonprofit structure, and it was taught by arts administrators from throughout uh, New York, people from the public theater, uh, people from you know ABT, the American Ballet Theater, um, and just really wonderful arts institutions. And I actually, in that class, and this is 2000, I was 21 and just out of college, and I wrote the mission that's still the mission today, you know, which is to enhance the cultural environment of Omaha through film. And I imagined, you know, it was a much more modest version where we would like program stuff at Jocelyn and, you know, and um, we would have a whole film series and, you know, maybe Alexander Payne would let us do a series of his films and then, you know, he ended up being super, super involved. So, um, so it's really amazing, you know, how, how, uh, how it came to fruition because I, I think originally it was, you know, it was, let's do a film series at the museum, but, um, but yeah, so. You said you studied English and political science? Mm-hmm. So yeah. did you have different sorts of ambitions before you sort of moved this way? Yeah, you know, I think I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was just kind of taking classes that really interested me, and I was kind of leaning towards journalism a little bit. I was really interested in journalism, but then within the English major, there were both these film history and criticism classes, so that's where um, I really started to realize how passionate I was about film and uh, and really love analyzing film and stuff like that. So, yeah, so, um, you know, moved out to New York after college, fell in love with the city. Um, you know, I figured out that the hardest part of running a nonprofit would probably be fundraising. So I was like, well, that's what I should do. I should do fundraising because that way I'll have experience, you know, in the thing that I'm most scared of, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, so I worked mostly in fundraising when I was there. I worked for WMYC, the public radio station, most of the time I was there. Um, I worked for a little theater in the West Village called Theater for New Audience that was amazing. Um, and I also, but when I first moved back, I worked um, at Miramax Films for a year in distribution. So that was that commercial side of things that, um, that I knew that I, that might not be a cultural fit, and it really, really wasn't. Um, it's been kind of amazing to see because Harvey and Bob Weinstein were still running it. There were only, you know, 100 people working there, and I was 22. What year was that? That was 2000, 2001 okay. that I was there. And, um, I mean, it was as intense a place to work as you could ever imagine. And it's been, it's been crazy to see everything that's been coming out the past couple of years. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've teared up, like, just, like, reading articles and seeing everything that's going on, because it's, like, I knew that I worked for like a really scary misogynistic place, but I had no idea that it was like the worst in the world. Well, was the office culture just like scary every day? Yeah, yeah. it was horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it wasn't like every day. Like, my boss was like, you know, he, but if you didn't like flirt with him the right way, then you'd get like get on his bad side. And, you know, it was a. Uh, 
it was, he had, had all young women working for him, and he'd take us all out to dinner, and he's like, you know, 50-something big dude from the Bronx, you know, who was like, um, very much uh, the tone of, that you imagine of Harvey and Bob, he reported directly to Harvey, and so, you know, it was distribution, and just film distribution is intense, like, there's like, kind of like this mafia-like culture of yelling and screaming on the phone and stuff like that, so, yeah, I really, he would just like yell at me from his office, like, Rachel, like, all the time, and like, it was, it was, it was a scary, misogynistic place to work. Have you seen Swimming with Sharks? Like, yeah, yeah so that's based more on Scott Rudin, I guess, but like, this, uh, it, it wasn't too dissimilar. Like, there were lots of stories about Harvey, too. Like, anything that came from Harvey's office, everyone was terrified and would freak out and run around. And everything was an emergency, and like, it was just a really crazy culture. That's the kind of thing that I feel like you're talking about sort of, there's that demystification process that maybe starts to ruin it because, I mean, Weinstein, Rudin have made so many of these classic movies, yeah. and you want to think that they're these great people supporting great artists, and then I don't know what to do with that information about, like, does, does that change your way of looking at a lot of your favorite movies? You know, it definitely did for a little while. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, I went in there being like, this is the Pulp Fiction place, this is Shakespeare in Love, this is, like, all of these movies that clerks, and... Um, you know, these are the people that support independent film and everyone's going to be cinephiles and then it was just all about money and celebrity and it was just really, um, I, I don't know, it was, it, was, uh, it, it was very disillusioning and, you know, I did have one friend there who was like truly, truly loved movies and was passionate about them and wasn't, and didn't get as, as jaded by the system. She was from New York so maybe, maybe culturally she could deal with it, but like, um, yeah, it was really disappointing, and it definitely soured me to ever working in commercial film, really. It, like, put me on that path, like, okay, I really need to work for a mission-based organization that is fundamentally, like, the bottom line is the mission and not um, making money, because when it is, it just, you know, that, that commercialized version of the art form, and there are exceptions, I think, you know, Miramax is one of the worst examples, but um, but I think you know it's it's really hard. It was it was much easier for me to like have it be actually in the structure of the business that I'm working for. That it's bottom line submission. Well, and so did that when you get to even doing film streams, did those experiences impact the types of movies you wanted to get? Were there ones where you're like, I don't want the Weinstein stuff? <laughs> you know, yeah, a little bit actually. Like, well, because at, what happened really is that the Weinsteins were so hard to deal with for theaters. They would kind of like bully around the exhibitors. And so I really didn't like playing with the Weinstein company. Like I remember when they had the artist, we had an exclusive on it. We had been promoting it forever and they had told us we were supposed to open Christmas Day. Christmas is a huge day for movie theaters. So we had planned to play it. Bob Fishbach was at the Omaha World Herald at the time, and he had a big article coming out um, the next day, and we were ready to open it, and literally, like, the Wednesday before we were supposed to open it on Friday, they just called us, and they're like, yeah, we're pulling it from everyone because, um, because they wanted to make sure the Oscar race worked the way that they wanted it to, and so they ended up opening it, like, six weeks later on, like, six of with us and then on six other streets in town and it was just like we can't do this when we have a little two-screen movie theater like we need to we need to be able to know what we're going to play and so it was just 
it was so it was such a nightmare for us for our tiny little team and like for everything that we were trying to do as we were trying to grow our organization we were like I said I said to my film I have a film booker based in Boston and um, who books she books we have a film booker she books multiple movie theaters throughout the country and um, and she I told her I don't want to play with Weinstein anymore because they're gonna do this to us. And she's like, she, she would tell other theaters that film streams boycotts, you know, Weinstein films, but we didn't actually do, totally boycott them. I mean, we ended up playing one or two with them, but at, it, was, it was mostly because of just how they treated us as exhibitors. And that's just in general how they are. They're just, you know. Well, they had such a monopoly on the kind of art house movies for such a while. Yeah, yeah. So, so you just can't avoid them to some extent. Right, like they have some really, really great films, like Carol, or like, you know, there's some really good movies that they put out. But then, you know, Harvey was known as Harvey Scissorhands, you know, because he would cut stuff up. And, you know, you could tell with the bad stuff, you could kind of have a feeling for when Harvey got his hands on it. And, like, it just would have, like, a certain kind of rhythm and a certain kind of feel. That, and I can't even describe, I can't even name which ones have it, but like sometimes I'll watch a movie, I'll be like, I can tell, like, that's, that's Harvey, it's, it's just like sort of wrong, you know, where he just cut it up in the wrong place or whatever it is. So. That's fascinating. I'd love to hear an example if you can think of one. <laughs> just a nerdy aside. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I will try. So, okay, but to get back to the main point of why we're here, though, other than just weird Harvey Weinstein gossip. Uh, so, you, so when you were going to Miramax to work there, did you have, was the idea that you would move into like being an executive? Would you want to write and like do filmmaking itself? Or what were you, what were you going No, for? like honestly, I, I had this idea that I wanted to move home to Omaha and start a nonprofit. Like I was really like singular in that idea. I mean, I, I wanted to work in the industry for a while. Um, and I think I would have been, if I would have stayed in commercial film, I would have been most interested in acquisitions, like going to film festivals and buying films. Um, but um, so I think if I had stayed, but I was only there for like a year. And then I went back to the nonprofit world where I was much more comfortable. So, Did you have specific skills you were able to bring from Miramax back then? Well, I don't know about skills, honestly. Like, I mean, other than it just, a sense of urgency <laughs> that might have been too extreme because because everyone was so hyper there about everything. Um, so I screamed a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just kind of like in order to get things done, you just like push things through. But no, I like honestly, I feel like I developed a lot more of the skills that really benefited me later um, at Theater for New Audience and at WMYC especially. WMYC, that's the big public radio station in New York and they are the polar opposite of Miramax. I mean, they've had some um, issues like Me Too stuff too, but like, um, but their stuff is just so different culturally. And I started working there in uh, 2002, so, or 2003, and so it was right after 9-11, it was 2002. So it was right after 9-11 and it was like, I went to sleep listening to WMYC because it was the only news source that I trusted and um, you know, they just do, did such incredible work and the people working there were so uh, thoughtful and confident and cared so much about what they were doing and just smart and the work environment was really nurturing and, and great and um, and they would send me to these conferences and I feel like I feel like the nonprofit film model is sort of 
uh, most maybe similar to public radio and and public broadcasting in the sense that um, you know there's a commercial version of it that's still thriving. But we all understand why there's a reason for you know public radio. Why there's a reason for the member-based model, um, and it's because you know it's because of what motivates you know what, what the work that they're doing. So um, so that was really the best experience that I had. I, I feel like I feel like Miramax, if anything, it, I probably took some bad vibes from there <laughs> and, and put it into work, um, especially early on when, we, when I was first starting and really nervous and. Didn't what was your job at WNYC? Uh, so I was working in membership and individual giving, fundraising stuff. Okay. It was cool. It was good. Did you meet Kurt Anderson through that? Yeah, yeah. So I met Kurt Anderson in the elevator at WNYC. Uh, he was working at Studio 360, and um, I had heard, you know, that he was from Omaha. Like I think he talks about it on the show a lot. And so I was like, Hi, I'm from Omaha too. And uh, and he was really, really nice to me. But like, you know, he's kind of like, okay, whatever. And then. When, um, you know, I worked there for about three years, and then uh, January 2005, um, you know, my friend Rob Danzel, who's the head of Saddle Creek, um, basically, you know, called me up in my apartment in the East Village and said, you know, I have this opportunity to not only build our concert venue, but we could also build your movie theater, and, um, you know, do you want to move home and start your thing? And so, um, so I spent about six months still working. I gave, like, six months notice at WYC, and I was still, I had just gotten into grad school in New York, and I was going to stay there and plan the nonprofit movie theater through grad school. But uh, but this opportunity was like kind of too good to pass up, and so I just wrote the business plan while I was out there. And while I was doing that, you know, Kerr was one of the first people I reached out to to see if he would, and he was their first advisory board member. I um, you know met with him, and uh, he he was really interested in what we were doing, and um, he said I remember he emailed back and he was like uh, I, I said if you're interested, and he's like. I, I I'm kind of surprising myself, but I actually am really interested. And, uh, <laughs> and so I remember we like met in a park, and like, um, and uh, he was super supportive and awesome right from the beginning. Um, and um, and he's always kind of seen film streams as you know, because his whole family, um, all of his siblings have left Omaha, and his parents have passed away, and so film streams is kind of his connection to Omaha, and he tries to come back through us. You know, we, we, he and I figure out different programs uh, for him to come back every couple of years, and I see him when I go out to New York, and he's just been, he's been really great, especially, like, to kind of talk through, like, creative programming ideas, and, um, yeah, and just having his name attached to it right from the beginning, I think, was really, really helpful and wonderful. He planned the political yeah. screening. Or, uh, was it? it was in 2016. Wasn't right, it? right. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did a series. I think it was called Hollywood and Politics. Yeah, uh, or, yeah like politics in Hollywood. Or, and so he curated a whole series, and it was summer of 2016. So it was right before the election. And he brought his friend Jonathan Alter, who's I know remember those days. So we didn't know. Um, no, he brought his friend Jonathan Alter. Who was um, who was with Newsweek for like 20 years, and he's the editor of Newsweek, and um, he's an amazing journalist. And um, Kurt and Jonathan did like this whole talk on movies in Hollywood, and it was really really cool. It was especially cool because Jonathan 
had followed so many different political campaigns that he could talk about like not just movies but like TV, like what what is the actual reflection of what it's like in DC? And he said, yeah, B, I think it's the closest. <laughs> Definitely watching Bullworth in 2016. Yeah. It was an interesting experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah that was cool. Yeah, so I mean. When, so you started to get the chance to actually go do it. He gave you six months notice. Were you, were you excited? Like, how tangible was it that it would work, or how terrifying was it at that point? Oh my gosh! Well, it was definitely terrifying. I was terrified, and I was having the best time in New York, you guys. Like, I was in my mid twenties, and I had, I had finally, like, you know, like had this amazing group of friends. Um, I had found like this basement apartment in the East Village, and had moved in with a friend, and like. I mean, I was having so much fun and loving the city, but it was like, and you know, I just, I had talked to everyone about this. Like anyone I talked to, it was like, what are your career goals? Well, you know, I, someday I want to do this. And I remember, you know, everyone at WYC was so supportive. Like my, my boss in development, like he would like, you know, talk to me about, um, you know, what, um, what I wanted to do and give me advice about like major donor apps and stuff like that and you know read this book I think Richard Florida had Rise of the Creative Class at the time and stuff like that and so um, I yeah I mean I think that uh, sorry I kind of got a little lost there but so no I, uh, I I just remember I had this laptop um, and um, and I, I, I literally I had bought it like right I, I think in January of that year and I spent those Six months every day I would come home from work and and read um, all these like at the time it was like chat rooms of independent filmmakers and I would just or sorry independent exhibitors like independent theater owners who would talk about like their average concessions per customer or like you know all sorts of random business plan stuff and so I would just like take notes on anything relevant and read through all this stuff um, obsessively. And then, you know, and then I also got introduced to, I mentioned our film booker, Connie White, who's absolutely been incredible. Like, I cannot imagine having been able to do this without having connected to Connie White early on because she books all these nonprofit theaters and, and I got connected to her, the guy that book, booked all the Saddle Creek fans at the time for tours, um, Eric D from Ground Patrol, he introduced me to his friend Bob Lawton, who ran a movie theater. So I talked on the phone to Bob Lawton, and Bob was like the first person you need to talk to is Connie White. And so Connie, she is the one that helped us navigate all the different pieces of distribution. And she was the one, she's still the one that's doing all the negotiations with the distributors. And it's never been just, you know, Rachel in Omaha calling Paramount to see if we can get something. It's always Connie who's representing a bunch of other things and she's got a lot more pull and she knows how to do these negotiations. So like that side of things I think um, was a huge stroke of luck. There's like been like so much luck involved with this, it's kind of unbelievable. But um, that well, was one with of those a lot moments. Of hard work, though, sure. Right, right, definitely. Like, you, I mean, but I think that that combination of, you know, really having the drive and being thoughtful about it, but then, but then being open to those opportunities, like when that luck comes along, like being able to identify it and latch onto it, I think is really, 
you know, I think that that's, that's been really important. And, um, but, but there's just so many little serendipitous things that I'm just like, I look back and I'm like, what would have happened if I hadn't, you know, whatever, we wouldn't be here, you know? How do you get confident that there wouldn't be an audience if you had the, this type of theater in Omaha? I, you know, I, I don't know if I ever really fully got confident. It was more just like, I love this stuff. Everyone's gonna, you know, everyone's gonna love it. Why wouldn't they? You know, it was kind of like I was coming home and I would like get so bummed because you know the Dundee would have you know kind of the same film playing for a really long time. You know, they would do some great stuff, but then they only had the one screen. So when they got a big Hollywood picture, you remember they would end up having to play stuff for a really long time. And I would, I would just get so bummed because there were like no independent foreign screens in Omaha and, and I would have this big list of stuff that I would want to see and it would be like, man, like all the Hollywood stuff that's played in Omaha I've seen, I've checked off those two and I'm just not interested in anything else. And so I just really saw that there was this huge gap here and there wasn't, there wasn't any classic film programming here at the time. I mean, really, other than Dudley Midnight's, uh, I don't remember. I mean, maybe you can correct me, but I don't no, think there was really. anything going on then. And so it just it just felt like, okay, there's nothing there, so why wouldn't they, you know, why wouldn't my, my city that I grew up in want and need that? And I also feel like, you know, the art scene and the, especially the music scene, um, just being so um, so vibrant at the time and um, having this whole uh, community of people that were so excited about uh, the art they were making and the stuff they were doing that were touring nationally and internationally. I mean, that whole scene, like being a little bit connected to that, mostly through you know the bands coming out to Omaha and the few people that I knew in the band. Or sorry, the bands coming out to New York and the few people that I knew in the bands. And then my sister you know, was working at Homer's Records, you know, and she, so when I would come home, we would go to Brothers, and she knew everybody, and like, um, and so I was kind of connected both in Omaha and in New York to like this whole music scene, and um, I think, I think knowing that that was happening made me think that there would be that, and then, you know, I, but I also think there was like a corporate community of professionals that were really interested in, um, in having more entertainment options here. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I just get annoyed with Omaha. Like you, you know, you assume it's like in Ch you hear in Chicago or LA or New York if there's any sort of independent movie or art house cinema, people will just go to it. And it seems like it, without film streams, I'd be skeptical that that would happen in Omaha. It seems like Omaha people are just like they'd be like, yeah, I don't even want to go out tonight, let alone just that endless curiosity. But it seems like you know enough people did show up. Was that the case when you actually get to the point of starting it? How did you get people to know about it and then actually to come downtown for it? And that's another thing. People don't want to, want to like drive to a different part of the city sometimes and yes. all those concerns. Well, in North Downtown was brand new. There was really like not much going on there other than at the time it was the Quest Center. Um, you know, like that was kind of the only other thing there. So yeah, it was kind of taking a big risk. But um, but I I knew that um, we needed to do some programming, you know, oh, when I first moved home, I just started meeting with everybody and like, and people, the thing about Omaha is that it's so great because you sit down with someone and they'll give you like a list of names of other people that you need to meet with and it's so cool because then, it, 
you know, you just like, they just start calling those people and then you just, you know, kind of expand um, your circles of people. And so I would just hang out at Blue Line and have these weird blind dates with all sorts of different people all the time. And, um, and so that was one way that I was like, you know, just meeting people and, um, and reaching out. Um, but then, you know, we did this, um, uh, Casey Logan, who's um, our deputy director now, um, he, I met him like almost immediately when I moved back and he was really stoked about it. Um, and then he, uh, so he was like the first person to like kind of really do work with me on it. And then also my dad, um, yeah, I'm gonna try not to cry, so I can my dad who just passed away, but um, thank you. Uh, but he was really, really supportive uh, right from the beginning, and he was at QTech Rock, so he got us our 501c3 status really quickly. I mean, that's another way that I'm really, really lucky because I had, you know, him like kind of connecting me to the corporate community and stuff, and um, and so you know he introduced me to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, one of the people that he introduced me to was at Jocelyn Art Museum, and um, my sister was actually, then went from Homer's Records to Jocelyn Art Museum, so she was working there too, and, um, and we ended up doing this film series at Jocelyn Art Museum in 2006, and so, and Jim, who's still our projectionist, he set up like a big 35 millimeter platter system in the back of Abbott Hall, and we did like 10 different screenings, and the coolest thing about that series was we we had a lot of um, we had a lot of different leaders in the cultural community who were really excited about this. Um, and so, like the Bemis partnered with us on a screening. Um, the public library was doing To Kill a Mockingbird with for Omaha Reads, and they partnered with us um, to do a screening of To Kill a Mockingbird. Omaha Performing Arts was just getting started. They were doing the ballet of the Magic Flute, so they wanted to partner on a screening of Amar Bergman's The Magic Flute. So, you know, through all of that, so we did this series at Jocelyn, Jocelyn put us in their newsletter, and then all these different cultural organizations also promoted the series because we were partnering with them, and that's sort of become a huge model of how we, um, you know, of how we do outreach and how we get the word out, and it's definitely tilted more towards I mean, we still love partnering with our fellow cultural organizations, and we're excited, you know, to figure out ways to partner with Eastside and Dustin Theater, and um, you know. But I, we've also expanded that into partnering with a lot of social service organizations and all sorts of other entities. But that really connected us to the core audience that we needed to reach because we had, you know, South Creek, we had the Public Library, we had Bemis, we had Jocelyn. Um, we also did, um, uh, Aretta Fink uh, actually played a show, uh, she, was, she had a band at the time called Art in Manila uh, with, with Sam McCarthy and a few other people, um, and they actually played a show at Omaha Healing Arts. Um, they did Maya Darren films, which was an experimental filmmaker, and, um, and they just played with the Maya Darren films and they had a big party. So we did a couple of different events. We did another screening at Bemis. Um, so that was kind of like how we got the word out about the capital campaign we were working on as we were growing the board. Um, those were the kind of smaller programs that we did. Um, and by the time we opened, I mean, the World Herald, I will say, was really, really nice to us. They did a bunch of articles. I think, 
you know, people who were into movies were ready for this. They knew that Omaha needed it. And so, um, and so the people that got it really got it and, um, and definitely helped support it. Another huge thing, obviously, was, uh, you know, just a few months after I moved home, I finally got a meeting with Alexander Payne. Uh, he called me up, and I remember. So you didn't have to reach out to him. No, no, I had definitely okay. reached out to him oh, first. Okay. Yeah, 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 no. I had, uh, I had uh, sent him an email, and a couple of different people had called him and said, this girl is doing this thing, you should meet with her. And so finally he called me. I think from Cannes, and I totally remember like being in my little one-bedroom apartment on 51st and Capitol, and like my voice was seriously shaking. I was like so nervous because I was such a huge fan of his, and I couldn't believe I was talking to him. And he was like, "Yeah," and we met up at Travados. Travados is still open, and um, and we sat down, and he was immediately like, I gave him the whole spiel. You know, I just had like this one-page thing, like here's what we're gonna do. It's gonna be you know, first-run films that would never come to Omaha. It's going to be rep films all the time on one screen. <laughs> and it's going to be this education program that's going to be film history criticism for high school students. And he was just like, he loved it. And he was like, I'll do whatever you want. He's like, and, and he's like, what can I do? And I said, well, join our board. <laughs> and uh, maybe you could give money and uh, curate our opening series. And he said yes to all the things. So when he called you, did he say like, "Hey, I'm just in cam right now"? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that sounds like something. <laughs> I have never met him, but actually, I have met him. But that, that's what I'm going to imagine. That seems yeah. like such an Alexander Payne way to talk right. to somebody. Yeah, yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah, very. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's somebody. So I've met him a couple times. I don't think he like knows who I because it wasn't like a real conversation sort of thing. And then I was at they did that Miles Davis thing uh, at the Orpheum last year, and. He sat in the row in front of me, and I awkwardly made eye contact with him a couple times, and it was like, I don't know, should I go talk to him? Should I just leave him alone? I don't know. He's one of those people, it's like, since he's back in town so much, you see him around, and people do go up and talk to him all the time, but it's like, I don't know, he probably has better things to do than me going up again. The thing is, he's really interested in people, and um, I mean, he's really, he's really kind, and he, you know, he, he loves meeting new people, and, um, and he wants to, he wants to know about people, and so, yeah, I mean, especially when he's in Omaha, I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not, like, trying to encourage everyone to run up to him, but, but, I mean, he's, he's very approachable, he's, he's, he's a really nice guy, I mean, he always talks about how, like, loving film is about loving humanity, and I think that that's really true, and it's, like, um, and I think that that's, um, that's true of him personally, too. He's just a great guy, yeah. Do you have any idea what he's doing with King Fong? <laughs> if I did, I couldn't talk about it, for sure. <laughs> I miss that place. That building is so cool. Yeah. Um, I have high hopes, we'll see. I have this fantasy that I'll see him like walking from his place with a bunch of boxes of things down at King Fong to go like personally work on it. Yeah. yeah that, that's my dream, I've never noticed it though. So I don't, well, I don't look hard enough, I guess. We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe you're having a vision of the future, who knows? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> so, okay, so anyway, so, what year did Film Streams do its first series? So I moved home in 2005. We did our first film series at Jocelyn in 2006, and then we opened we opened the Respect Left Theater in summer of 2007. So okay. July 2007, um, right after Slowdown opened, uh, we opened for the first time, and Alexander created our opening series with 10 favorite films of all time. Which ones were those? Well, it, we opened with Seven Samurai. Um, there was a British film called Room at the Top, 
Uh, that's really great. Um, an Italian that I saw just has a new restoration, so we might be playing it again soon. Um, it's amazing. And um, uh, La Notte, which is an Italian film that's really beautiful. Antonioni. Um, uh, let's see, what else was in there? To Be or Not To Be, I think, was one of them, which is a Lubitsch film uh, from the 30s. It's amazing. Um, Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin, uh, The Last Detail, Hal Ashby. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can list them all, but was, like, Did yeah. he go to the screenings then as well? Was he? Well, happy? so yeah, he did. He did, he actually did two uh, events at the theater for people who had come into the capital campaign in the weeks in the week leading up to it, where he um, he basically did a talk about all the films that he curated, and he showed clips from them, and it was That's really cool. really special. It was really fun, and then. Um, I just remember opening night, we played Seven Samurai in the big house, and it was a full house. And I mean, just to see, you know, Seven Samurai with, with 200 people, and the only other time I had seen it was on a tiny screen. And that movie, I mean, you have not seen it until you see it on the big screen. You have to see it on the big screen. There's way too much going on in that film to, to watch it on a little TV. And it was just such a profound, it was such a fun experience, you know, opening the theater with you know, this Japanese film from the 60s, it was really sweet. So at, at that point, had you reached some realization where you were like, okay, I think this is going to work? Yeah, I mean, I think so, but you know, like, it was still really, really nerve-wracking. And I mean, you know, that first year, I mean, in 2008, we had like 35,000, um, you know, people come. I mean, last year, between Dundee and the Recycle Theater, we had 107,000 people. So. I mean, we've had, we worked really, really hard to find and grow our audience. And I mean, I think, you know, we've had to learn some lessons too. Like, like I was saying, like there was that idea of that model of, you know, we're only going to play films that would never play in Omaha. Like if it's playing anywhere else, we're not going to do it. You know, we can do these really weird Korean films and, you know, like whatever it is we want. Um, and then, you know, we can devote an entire train of rep and do a Cassavetti series and have it be, you know, like a full screen of shows of, you know, even his most obscure stuff. And, you know, like we realized pretty quickly that that wasn't the best use of the screen time, that if we were going to do classic films, that it would feel a lot better if we played them like twice or three times and then you actually have a crowd for them. And that, you know, with those first-run films that we could do those small, you know, weird Korean films, but that we actually would attract a bigger audience if we also played, you know, Slumdog Billionaire at the time, or like if we also played, you know, some of the bigger films that were out. Um, and, and, and then these audience members might join and they might come and check out, you know, 400 Blows or check out you know, a Chaplin film or see a documentary for the first time or whatever it is. And I think, you know, um, my colleague at Angie Balserini is here and she is our community engagement manager. And, you know, her role is really important because I think, you know, what we realized really early on for audience building is that, you know, like we are not, we're not gonna be able to run this theater just on, um, you know, people who consider themselves to be cinephiles. We have to help people discover the, the, the kinds of films that we're showing. And part of what we need to do and part of the power of film is to 
you know, be able to watch something with an audience and, you know, everyone walks in with totally different experiences and then they have the same experience for an hour and a half, like, that can be such a profound springboard for dialogue and conversation. And so we realized pretty early on that if we collaborate with social service nonprofits, with people who, like, I think one of the earliest collaborations that we did that I always think about is the Anti-Defamation League um, was trying to get the word out about Darfur in 2007 before people were talking about the genocide in Darfur. And there was a documentary about it and they were like, will you play this? And we're like, yeah, absolutely. And so we played this film and they you know, facilitated a panel discussion afterwards. And, um, and we just realized that that was both a way to build audiences and just bring people to the power of, um, of movies. And, um, and and kind of maximize that power by bringing it home to our community. So bringing the people who are working on these global issues um, in Omaha to talk about you know the documentaries that people are experiencing and everything else. So so we developed this whole community development program where we have a committee of community leaders who meet on a quarterly basis and they um, you know get applications from different community organizations to partner on screenings with discussions following and we and the committee reviews them and we choose you know sometimes it's really competitive like sometimes we have 10 applications and we only have space for you know five or six uh, community partnerships and we try to be really thoughtful about it because we want it to be connected to our mission of promoting our film and so it's got to be a really good movie it's got to be something that we're proud to show and then um and then we also um wanted to support the partner's mission and um and make sense for them um and so those have been really terrific and that's like such a great way to bring new audiences to the theater and to help people care about it who you know, if you don't care, if you don't think that you care about movies, well, maybe you care about, you know, um, you know, women and gender issues, or maybe you care about, uh, you know, maybe you care about, um, you know, like mental health, or maybe you care about climate change and food issues, and that'll bring you uh, to the theater, and it builds this community around the theater that's not just um, the usual suspects for an art house movie theater. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's totally true. There's so many, I mean, I feel like I was one of those people who was brought in almost more for the retrospective series, and then I've just gotten sucked into so many of the things you guys are doing, and it's always so fun to go see all that. And so, like, you'd figured out that balance, of course, but it seems like it's unusual for a nonprofit to almost become like a franchise, because then eventually the Dundee happens, right? And that's got to be its own complicated story. <laughs> I've got another embarrassing story about that, actually. So I, for some, like, I have no experience doing anything like what you do. But I was just sitting around. I was like, you know, I feel like I haven't done anything with Dundee in a while. I was like, can I find enough money to just like try to open that place myself? And no experience. Like, I, you obviously put in a lot of work. I put no work into it. It was just like a whim. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I wonder how much it would cost. And then it was like two days later, the story came out that Film Truth was going to get it. And I was like, oh, okay, good. That makes that so much better. That's, that's going to work so much better. I'm not going to be like financially ruined <laughs> trying this. Well, it was kind of like that. You know, someone needed to do it, right? And I mean, I think it, it took us a while to come around to it, but it was like we slowly 
kind of understood that we were in the best position to do it. Having built this nonprofit organization with um, you know all of the support around it, and we knew how to be exhibitors. And um, you know, I mean, basically, we did a strategic planning process in 2013. And it was really all about, you know, outreach and um, program enrichment, like doing more dialogue around film, doing more silence with live musicians, and you know, bringing more filmmakers to town, and just more engagement around the films that we were showing, um, and expanding our education program. And the, you know, one of the other issues that we just talked about constantly was that the two biggest complaints we got in our annual survey were, were that. We weren't showing enough of the first-run foreign films, documentaries, and independents that people wanted to see, and that we weren't holding them for long enough, that we didn't have enough, um, that we weren't spending enough time with them. And so the only response to both of those complaints is we need more screens, right? And so, and so we knew, like, kind of out there in the future that we wanted more screens. It would have made a lot more business sense to have four screens downtown than to have two separate venues. But then the conversation around Envy came up too, and it was kind of like, so we love that Denny, you know, is keeping it open at the time it was it was still running, and um, and it complemented our programs in really good ways because we only had the two screens, so a lot of the independent distributors would have enough films out at a certain time that they would, you know, they would alternate who they offered their films to. So Magnolia would call us up and they would say. Okay, it's your turn. You know which of these four films we're putting out do you want? And we'll offer the other two to Dundee, and then they would call Dundee the next session and kind of offer them that. Or like, you know, we would sometimes communicate with each other and say, you know, so we really complimented each other, and I appreciated that they were bringing um, bringing the kind of stuff that we wanted to bring too. Um, and we never played anything together, which was really helpful. Um, but. But I also knew, like, they were running as a commercial theater and a shoestring, and it needed a huge amount of money in renovations. And so, um, you know, I knew that, you know, it was unlikely that they would be able to invest what they would need in order to upgrade to the point that they needed to. And um, and we kind of just kept our eye on it. And then, you know, we heard that there was, like, plans going around the city for, like, everything to be leveled for that entire block to go away. And it was like, I honestly um, had just come off maternity leave when Denny first put an article in the World Herald, did an interview with Micah where he said, you know, we're um, the, you know, um, we're probably not gonna actually renovate and reopen. You know, I'm hoping someone else will. That's probably when you kind of got inspired to do it. Yeah, then I had my dumb idea. I was like, well, what if I just do it? <laughs> no, and a lot of people, I think a lot of people were thinking about it. I was talking to some people who were who were seriously thinking about it, and, you know, maybe, you know, someone else could have done it, but, um, but then it was kind of like, okay, we need to explore this, and so, you know, I sat down with him pretty soon after that. I called him. My husband made a video on his phone of me calling him. He's like, you're rolling this ball down the hill now. And um, and we literally had like a four-month-old at home. So I wasn't super stoked about, you know, like doubling our work. But like, um, but I also just couldn't imagine, you know, driving by that block. I grew up at 58th and Underwood. I grew up like right around there. And I couldn't imagine, you know, it just being destroyed, and so, um, so, 
you know, started talking to the board about what it would take. And along with the board, Susie Beth is not on our board, but she's been a huge supporter from the beginning. And so she was, along with the board, someone I needed to sit down with. And she was immediately like, Rachel, why don't I buy it? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I, I, mean I, I don't think she decided right in that moment, but like a few weeks later, she called me and told me that she had, she had bought it. Sherwood Foundation bought it, R.H. Development, and they intended to donate it to us. So, um, so that was pretty incredible, and we kind of had a whole plan with how we would, um, with how we would be able to run it, along with uh, the downtown venue, and how we would really make it into a place um, and a special venue. And um, yeah, it, it, it went really, really well. Like there were enough people who got it and who were passionate about it that that capital campaign. Um, was, uh, I mean, it's never easy to raise money, but, um, but people were excited. It means so much to people. I mean, even just people still going to the Dundee, you could tell there's that pride, like just going and be part of that culture in Omaha still. And so, I don't know, I, I love it. I love going there. And that opened, what, was it two years ago? Well, less than two years. It was a, a year ago last December. So, yeah, so it's okay. only 15 months. 15 months, yeah, we did a sort of a softer opening where Jane played actually that oh, okay. documentary about um, Jane Goodall, and, um, but yeah, Downsizing was the official premiere really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people love it. It's such a fun place to go to, and I love that you got the restaurant, the microcinema was so cool. What was the idea, I mean, instead of having a bigger screen to just do the microcinema, was it just that's what space you had? Uh, no, I mean, so, so I, like, we couldn't, like, really get our head wrapped around running it as the, the same way that it was. Like, the, the top questions that I got were, how are you going to get the entrance off of Dodge Street? And, um, you know, and then, and then with distributors, like, there's a reason that one screen movie theaters, like, functioning in seven-day-a-week movie theaters, you know, don't really exist as much anymore. And a big reason for that is that, you know, you need to be able to program stuff, you need to be able to move stuff off of, you know, your main screen, and, and you need to have, you need to have multiple screens, at least two. I mean, really the ideal, I think, is four, and we technically have four now. Um, and we didn't want to cut up, we didn't want to cut up the main theater. Um, we wanted it to be a similar experience uh, that our parents and grandparents had walking into that room. You know, we wanted it to feel the same. And so, um, and so that's where kind of the concept of, you know, having the kitchen table space, having like a community space where people can hang out before and after films. Uh, you know, really making a place uh, was really important. And then also, downtown we have 206 and 96 seats, and there we would have this 300 seat theater. So if you can imagine with the first run films we're programming, that, we knew that that meant that we would, you know, play some bigger movies, we would play Hereditary, we would play A Star is Born, um, you know, we would need to play some bigger movies in order to make that house work. And so we wanted to um, sort of take care of the, of the other side of the spectrum as well. And you know, having a 25-seat theater means that you essentially get to book, you know, really weird small stuff. You know, it's 25 seats. So uh, you know, we're playing the nine-hour War and Peace restoration in a couple of weeks just because we can. You know, like. 
directives in there. Um, you know, we hired an education director in 2016 and a PhD in media studies. That's been a really important part of our growth, and she's really terrific. She does her adult education program there, um, Diana Martinez. So she teaches, it's called courses. So you sign up and you go for five weeks and you take a class on, you know, she did one on the haunted house in the fall. She's doing one on animation this spring that should be really cool. Uh, you know, she's done one on film style. So you get this little mini crash course. And the really cool thing about the micro cinema too, it's actually like a really special place, as tiny as it is. Um, there's actually desks in right. there, and um, and so it's great for the courses. Like you can have these little classrooms, this little classroom vibe in there. It's really intimate, and it's like you found a sweet spot where people can yell at the screen, but it's not annoying. You feel like you're just watching with your friends. Like I saw uh, the new Michael Moore one, and everyone's just like screaming the whole time. And normally that sounds terrible, but it was actually really fun. Everyone's like, oh, yeah. afterwards too which is cool because some of the films there you kind of need to be like what just happened and so it's kind of nice i love that space yeah alternatively there was one person i was with who spilled an entire popcorn in there and uh you can't hide there's no oh, anonymity between yeah, the yeah, yeah, that's, like, that's a good point yeah yeah, yeah knows that that was the guy um, <laughs> yeah. yeah but but i think also like you know having kitchen table in that space the idea behind that was you know if we have a restaurant partner who can kind of activate the space before and after movies give people a reason to hang out um then you kind of have this organic um you know way of sort of meeting people and you're eating next to someone and um, and you can talk about, you know, what was that ending, or what did you think of that one, and um, and kind of, you know, create that whole other level of, of community building that's a little bit more organic. And then also we have a lot of like po we'll have post parties in there, you know, after we have a filmmaker um, and things like that. Um, we don't have that kind of space downtown. I mean, our lobby is pretty tight for a party. It can be really fun, but it's pretty tight. So mm -hmm. it's really nice to have a space that can just be devoted to that kind of. What was your best experience watching a movie at either of the theaters? Oh my gosh, that's a really hard question. Uh, what are just some of them? That's a really hard question. I mean, the Seventh Samurai thing is pretty memorable because I mean that was that was really early, and you know, and I do um, the first time I watched a movie at, in the main house at Dundee, it was um, it was really really special. Um, I. Gosh, what was I, the first one you watched at Dundee? Uh, it was Jane, the okay, okay, Jane so, okay. documentary, which sounded and looked incredible in there. It looked so good. I mean, I, when the when the um, Boston Lightning Sound did all of the cinema um, installation work and um, when they were just testing trailers and stuff in there, that was pretty cool too. That was really really exciting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think. That's a really hard question. We've had so many special experiences, you know, where people have come and, um, you know, T Tamara Jenkins uh, came uh, while I was on maternity leave. Uh, the staff would like to, I had another baby last summer. And so I've got a three-year-old and a six-month-old now. And, um, and uh, while I was on maternity leave in October, I came um, for this Tamara Jenkins screening. And that was pretty special because I kind of, I really did feel like I was just coming as like, uh, you know, as a patron and just like watching a movie and having that experience of, and it was a great film and Tamara's an amazing director. She's so inspiring. The Q&A was really cool. And it was 
was just so cool to see like how, what a great job like the staff is doing and that you know this this place just goes and I don't have to like drive things as much as I used to and like we just have such wonderful people um, that care so much about the mission that can execute things in great ways. Yeah. So we're going with the private life, is that your answer then? <laughs> no, no, I mean, this is just one example. Yeah, okay, I, anyway, right. come on, I can't have like a Too final okay. bottom line answer. I'll probably think of more, I'll right. probably think of more. I mean, I've, I really love the silence and concert stuff that we've done too. Uh, we did a whole series um, downtown where different, mostly local musicians uh, wrote like, uh, scores to different silent films. Um, we did this one of the Hitchcock Nine, which were the super early Hitchcock films, uh, the silent era ones where um, different musicians composed scores to each of those. And that was like this really special thing because it was like this this weird little film club kind of emerged that was like sort of with the music scene where everyone was coming each week and seeing what the other artists were doing. So I love that, like that sort of collaboration with local um, local musicians and artists, that was really special. Man, having Steve James in town was pretty special. He came two different times and like, I still remember seeing Hoop Dreams when I was like 15 at Indian Hills and um, just being blown away by that movie, just being totally riveted. Um, my brother played college basketball and so my whole family went and we were just like, so into it. And he's a documentary filmmaker for those that don't know that did the best documentary ever, Hoop Dreams, and then um, he also directed this film called The Interrupters, which is about gang violence intervention in Chicago, so we did a lot of like partnership programs um, with, with Impact One that at the time was doing a similar program in Omaha to The Interrupters, um, so that was, that was a really special experience, like Steve James came twice, and um, he's awesome. Okay, that, those are, we've got so many good answers there, so I'll stop talking about it. I'll give you like 10. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, I think this is a good time. Let's open up. Does anyone in the audience have a question? You can shout it out and I'll repeat it in the mic. Anyone? I can keep going too, otherwise. But. See, last, last week we put pressure on everybody. It was like, another kind of little crowd, so I was like, okay, every single one of you has to ask a question. Everyone now, in the room. We have enough time for it. <laughs> okay, well, if anyone thinks of oh, okay, yes. I love that stuff. I really, I like, my favorite thing is like setting people up or some, you know, so like people meeting um, at film streams is like really exciting. Yeah, um, there's, there's been a couple of people who've gotten engaged there. Um, one of my favorites, we have a board member, uh, Jerry Lordson, who went on her first date with, um, with her husband, Bruce, at, at the theater. They saw like a Henry Fonda movie. She's a huge, classic film fan, um, so that's really cute. Um, yeah, I feel like I do hear those stories, and I love it, it's so sweet. Like, we need to do more singles night stuff, I think, because we need to like just set people up, you know? The microphone was great for you know, right? being people. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, we have two volunteers, yeah, Jamie Heckert, right? Yeah, we have two, volunte two volunteers, or, or regulars, who met going to courses, going to Diana's classes. Um, and they are dating, and they are so cute and happy together. Oh my god, I was like freaking out. I saw them together, I was like, you guys are dating? And you met at the 
someone has a question. There, there was one story, though, about, like, I think on their wedding band, it says Theater One. Oh, right, yes. That, I don't know who that was. Though. Yeah, yeah, because they met in Theater One, yeah. or, or he proposed in Theater One, and so she actually, yeah, she has engraved on her wedding band, it says yeah. Theater One. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That is cool. Okay, so as far as, like, the future of movies, it seems like, there's a lot of doom and gloom talking about the theatrical experience at this point. And Filmstream seems like it's able to sort of be different just by really being passionate about what you're playing. It's not just a random sort of selection of what's new. I mean, is that what you think will save the theatrical experience in the future? Or where do you see all that going? You know, I mean, I feel like everyone talked about the demise of the movie theater in the 50s when televisions were in everyone's house. Everyone talked about it in the 80s when VHS, you know, was was prominent, um, you know, and now everyone's talking about with streaming services, and it's like, you know, it, it's never died, it's just continued to grow, and I feel like, um, you know, you have all these different alternatives, I watch movies on Netflix, I also love watching movies in the theater, and, you know, it's a really interesting debate going on right now, and we're definitely having it amongst the staff, I mean, Private Life, the movie I mentioned, that was a Netflix movie, we only showed it one time, because it was playing on Netflix, and so we had the experience of bringing the director, and doing a special screening, and being able to see it on the big screen with the community, um, you know, I mean, having that live component of being able to interact with the artist, I think is really important um, as much as possible. We did like 87 different public programs last year that had some sort of live component. So I think, you know, doing different partnerships, having, you know, like different introductions and community partners, having live musicians with silence, having artists there. I think, you know, that's really important. Um, but I also think that people just like to get out of their house and have a popcorn and sit in the dark with strangers and watch something. I think that that is a great, special experience. And there are some films that are just meant to be seen on the big screen. I mean, we chose to show Roma, um, even though it had already been out on Netflix, and um, you know, we we. Uh, opened it basically the week that the Oscar nominations came out um, because, and, and I waited, I waited to see it until I could see it on the big screen at Dundee and it was amazing in there and I'm so glad I saw it in the theater instead of at home on Netflix and I'm not like that with every single movie but there are some movies that are just meant for that and so you know, I, I think as many people should see it as possible, so if the fact that more people, it's on Netflix means more people are going to see this film, then fantastic, but, um, but I just think that there's that special place for, you know, having that experience of watching something with strangers and having the community experience of being able to go out and see something, and then just, like, you don't have as big a screen at home as we do at Dundee, so uh, you're going to have a better experience, and the sound is incredible. I feel like what scares me more about killing going to the theater than uh, Netflix is Marvel at this point. I'm just like, uh, I'm so sick of everything <laughs> being the same movie unless I'm going someplace like Film Street or Draft House or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Have you watched Spider-Man yet though? It's pretty good. The, no, I haven't seen the Spider-Man since Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Yeah, so well I'm the animated one is like really good, yeah. Okay, I hear that, yeah. yeah. I just have to get over my cranky demeanor, I guess, and give somebody yeah. a shot when they say it's actually good. Yeah, I heard this new one's not so good, unfortunately, but, um, yeah. I, you know, I don't know, I'm just disconnected from it. It's too bad. 
<laughs> All right, any other questions from the audience? It's pressure, come on. Ben, ask your question, come on, come on. No questions. <laughs> you did such a great job. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much, first off, to Benson Theater for hosting this event, and thank you so much to Rachel Jacobson for being here. Tom, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Uh, you've been so nice, and yeah, thanks to everybody who came out. Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce it along with Ben Matugowitz through our company, Exarbon Creative. The live events are a co-production through B-Side of the Benson Theater, which is a great local project that you should absolutely look into, restoring the Benson Theater. They are in the final stages. They need a little bit of your help to make it happen, to create a venue for all kinds of people in Omaha to be able to talk, whether that's just creative, whether it's political, whatever it might be. You're probably interested in it if you're listening to this show. And if you don't know anything about the Benson Theater, look into it. It's worth it. Also, film streams. Isn't Rachel Jacobson just the coolest person in the whole world? I love talking to her. That was one of my favorite things. It's my favorite show we've ever done. And I hope you liked it. I hope you go to film streams. I hope whether you're already someone who goes to film streams, whether it's the first time you've ever heard about it, you're inspired to look into it a little bit more, to notice how exactly things are being put together there and to appreciate the fact that we have this. We didn't always have that in Omaha. Appreciate the fact that it's here because it's really amazing. And I, you know, I think it's life-changing in some cases. So support film streams, support local art, support all of that. To support us, please follow us on social media. Riverside Chats is the name on everything that you'll find. Also, podcast app, whatever your favorite podcast app is, please subscribe. Please leave a review if you have time. It doesn't have to be a great review. Well, I mean, well, I'd prefer you don't leave bad reviews, but, you know, it doesn't have to be a well-written review. It doesn't need to be multiple paragraphs. Just say, good show. However many stars you think. Right? Easy enough. It helps us get the word out. helps get this show out. Please do tell your friends both about the podcast version and the live events. We always love to have people at the live events. It's an opportunity for you to ask questions to any interesting person that you want to that we are up there, that we have up there. So you get the chance to talk to that person. Then after the show, you probably have a chance to meet that person. It's great. It's a great opportunity beyond what we can offer just as a podcast. That's why we do the live events. It's inclusive. Help us include you. Please show up. If you showed up and you liked it, if you listened to this, please look into the upcoming ones. We've got an upcoming show with Cara Eastman coming up later this month. Stay tuned to Riverside Chats. We will be back very soon. Thank you for listening.